All right, turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13. Uh, again, I, I'm not sure whether I'm apologizing or promising, but we will not, you will not stay there. Like, keep your fingers nimble. We're, we're, we're going to move. Uh, somebody said to me last week, wow, Jeff, you were reading some of those passages really fast. Yeah, sorry. Um, we, <laughs> you know, me, normally I like to just take a little chunk of scripture, you know, paragraph, chapter, something, and, and talk through it. And, but wow, doing this series on the, the overarching story of the Bible, this overarching story of redemption. Why do we need Easter? Why does Jesus have to come? Can't we solve this problem ourselves? What's going on? Um, boy, that requires you to look at some big sections of scripture. So, you know, it is always my goal to preach 30 minutes because that's the length of a VeggieTales episode. And I figure that that's pretty much perfect. Like, how can you improve on that? So I just apologize ahead of time for the last couple of weeks and probably for the next couple of weeks. I'm exceeding my normal VeggieTale allotment of time as I do this. So remember where we left on our, our story arc, right? That, that Moses had taken Abraham's descendants who this is, you know, 600 years after Abraham, so now there's millions of them. He had taken them out of Egypt where they had been enslaved, and they've gone into the Sinai Peninsula, and they're camped at Mount Sinai, and Moses is going up and down, up and down, up and down the mountain, talking to God, talking to people, talking to God, talking to people, and he brings back all the plans for the tabernacle, because remember where we started in the Garden of Eden, when God makes people and everything's good, but then people won't obey. Like, it's God's world, it's his rules. If you're not going to play by them, then you don't get to stay there. And they're like, no, we're not going to play by your rules. We want to be in charge of ourselves. And God says, okay. And they go off to be in charge of ourselves. And, you know, we, you can just watch the downward spiral as mankind does that. So now we have the tabernacle. Not since Eden has God dwelt with people. But now he's in their presence again. But remember, there's a curtain a foot deep between him and then, and you don't go past that curtain. Like, you can hear him, but you can't see him. You can't go in there. You can't be in his presence. The high priest can do it once a year for a few moments. And before he goes in, he's got to stick a, a censer full of incense in there to fill the place up with smoke. And then he can go in with the blood and come out and go in with the blood and come out. And God is with people, but, but there's still this huge wall between them. So we're picking up our story now. They've been camped at Mount Sinai. All of Abraham's descendants were one of God's promises to Abraham was, you will have more descendants than you can count stars in the sky. And wow, God's done that. I mean, it went from one guy now, 600 some odd years later, there's millions of them. They are definitely a nation. They are the Hebrew people. But remember, that's not all God promised Abraham. God promised Abraham that they would have the land of Canaan. Right? Can you be, are you a nation if you don't have a place to live? I don't know. I suppose the sociologists debate that. But God's going to give them the land of Canaan. It's the modern-day land of Israel. And so that's where they're headed. And God also said, kings will come from you. You will have kings in your line. There's going to be, there's going to be their own government, their own kingdom at some point, And that hasn't happened yet. So we know that's where we're headed. We're headed for them having their own land, them having their own government, them having a king. And so... If you go from where we left off in Leviticus until Numbers 13, they pack up at the mountain and they head on out, and now they're camped at the Jordan River. 
So imagine our very simplistic map. Here's the Jordan River. They're camped on the east side, and on the west side is Canaan. We'll just call it this big rectangle. Modern-day Israel, Mediterranean Sea's over here. They're camped on the other side. They're going to go across the river. They're going to be in Canaan. They're going to take over this land. Right? And so start along. Look at verse chapter 13 of Numbers with me. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. So if you read on down, you'll learn the names of the guys who get picked, what Moses says to me, he's like, go spy it out. You know, where are the people? Where are the cities? Where are the roads? What do we got to deal with? We know we're going there. What are we going to deal with when we get there? And you keep going through this chapter, and they go, and it tells you where they went and what they did and all. Now pick up the story in verse 26 of chapter 13. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. So this is just the other side of the Jordan River. They reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we, are explore, land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. They seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, Oh, if only we died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land? Only let us fall by the sword. Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said, and they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back. So God's taken them out of Egypt. He said, he, again, he made a promise to Abraham 600 years before this. I'm going to give this land to your people. He's led them right up. We're going to go across. We're going to take it. And the people say, oh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> no, 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 no. They sent these guys out to report where are the towns, where are the cities, where are the roads, what do we got to deal with? And instead they come back and report, we can't do it. It's not possible. Can't happen. And everyone agrees with them. Everyone believes them. And so they're like, no, no. We're not going. And Moses argues with people. And he's like, no, 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 you can go. We can do this. People are like, nope, no way. And then God shows up. And God says, okay. If this, you don't want it, if you, I'm offering, if you don't want it, right? It's like you're a kid at Christmas, right? Here's a present. No, I don't want your present. Okay. You don't want it? Fine, God says. You won't have it. You can live in the desert. God says, all of you, basically anyone who's an adult, 20 years or older, any, all of you, you can just live in the desert, you live out your lives, and then after you're dead, I'll bring your children here, because I promised I would do this, and if you don't want it, I can wait. And that's exactly what happened. They spend 40 years, the rest of the book of Numbers, like if you keep flipping through the book of Numbers, it is where they go and who they saw, who they had to fight, because of course there are people living there and they don't want them there. Everything that happens all the way through until you get to the book of Deuteronomy, all of that is them just spinning around in the desert, waiting for everyone to die who didn't want to go into the land. 
And they all do. 40 years later, everyone who was an adult at that time, except for one guy, Caleb, the guy who said, oh, let's go. <laughs> like, they're ours. God has given, this is our land. Let's go. He is the only guy of that whole generation, and Moses as well, who's still alive. And so we get to the book of Deuteronomy, and we're right back where we started. Here's the Jordan River, and they're camped right here beside it. And Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy means literally second law, Deutero second, nomos law. It's all old Greek and Latin, right? All these words are Greek and Latin. Moses is telling a new generation what happens. And so he recounts everything that happened. He goes all the way through. He starts out in chapter one. I'm reading the headings. Command to leave Horeb, Horeb's Mount Sinai. The spies are sent out. The rebellion against the Lord. All these things. He just goes back through the story, telling all the ones who were kids or who have been born in the last 40 years, how did we end up here? We ended up here because your parents wouldn't obey. Because your parents didn't believe, they didn't trust, they were afraid. And the whole book of Deuteronomy is a retelling of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, the second law. He's going back through it. It's basically just three big speeches that Moses gives. It's all, in fact, in Hebrew, it's called the words of Moses. That's the name of the book. Because that's what he's doing. It's all Moses talking. And he tells them all their history and how they got there. And we get to the end of Deuteronomy, and Moses dies, and Joshua is made the new leader. Joshua was a kid before then. He was, a, he was Moses' young aide, and Joshua's put in charge. And again, we have this question, okay, are they going to obey or not? And oh yeah, absolutely, they're going to obey. <laughs> After all that wandering and everything else, they are ready. And in they go. And if you've read Joshua, which you have, right? Because you have a Bible reading plan and you're reading through scripture. And the first half of Joshua is so exciting. It's battles and intrigue and they march all night and then they have to fight in the morning. And it's got stories like where the sun stands still so that they can fight longer. And oh, the first half of Joshua is so exciting. And you hit Joshua chapter 13 and it comes to a screeching halt. Like, it is the parts of the Bible that you want to skim through. You're like, oh, my reading plan today, it's Joshua 14 and 15. Okay, we finished that. Because here, let me, I'm going to read you again. I'm just reading the headings from my Bible, right? Starting in Joshua 13. Division of the land east of the Jordan, Joshua 14. Division of the land west of the Jordan, Joshua 15, allotment for Judah. Joshua 16, allotment for Ephraim and Manasseh. Joshua 18, allotment for Benjamin. Joshua 19, allotment for Simeon. Allotment for Zebulun. Allotment for Issachar. Allotment for Asher. I could continue. It's these long lists of, okay, Issachar, you will have from this cave to this stream down to this rock, the, the big one, not the small one that looks like this rock, but the large one. Back over to the Mediterranean. It, it, it's like, for us, it is mind-numbing. Because it's just a list of place names, cities, towns, roads, all this. The whole second half of the book is like that. What in the world is going on? Okay, Joshua leads the people across into the land of Canaan, modern day Israel. Okay? And he takes the whole army, I mean everybody, all together. Like you heard all those names, right? This, this nation divides themselves up by families as in somebody who lived 500 years ago. If you're in the tribe of Dan, that means your dad's 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 dad, all the way back, four or 500 years, was a guy named Dan. 
If you're in the tribe of Judah, your dad's 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 dad. All the way back, hundreds and hundreds of years, was a guy named Judah. Right? They, they, they were actual people, and these are now their descendants, hundreds of years later. He takes all of them, the whole army, and he goes across and he fights three campaigns, one in the center of the country, one in the south, and one in the north. And he takes out all of the military installations. He takes out basically all of the giant walled cities. Because these guys don't have military bases and armories and things like that. It's all stored in a walled city, in a fortress. Joshua takes the entire army, central, south, north, and he wipes out every major military installation in the land of Canaan. Because that's what you do if you want to take over something. You know, if we decided, as Georgia, that the Florida has way too many beaches, we have just as much land as they do, but our, our beach runs like that compared to theirs. We're taking over the panhandle. We're evening out this whole beach thing, right? We're not going to go and invade Panama City and take it over because there's like five military bases in the panhandle of Florida. They're going to come get us. We're going after the military bases first. We're going to take out the military bases and the armories and the armors, the, the soldiers, the tanks, the planes, and then we're going to go take over the beaches once they're out of the way. That's what Joshua does. That's the first half of Joshua. Take out all the major military installations, which is to say walled cities where armies and arms and everything else are stored. And then the second half is Joshua saying to all those individual groups, Dan and Judah and Naphtali and Simeon, all of them, okay, that's your area, go and take it. So we've wiped out all the major military places, and now the army's going to split up. And they're going to go, and each of them is supposed to go take their particular area. This is your assignment. We all fought together to take out the big guys. Now we're splitting up to go take out all these little places. And so the second half of Joshua is all these different things that you go through. Here's your land. Here's your land. You go take, what they're saying is, okay, you go take this, you go take this, you go take this, you go take this, you go take this. This is how we're going to take over the whole country. So we start the book of Judges. The question is, are they going to do it? Like there's no major military power left. In fact, when we get to the, the, the judge Deborah, she is fighting a guy who styles himself as the king of Canaan. But we're told that his palace is in Hazor, which is not a city in Canaan. <laughs> it's a city 50 miles north of Canaan. Josh, wherever he used to be, Joshua took him out. And he and his army and whatever was left of it, they all fled north into modern-day Lebanon for us. They had to get, they had to get out of Canaan because Joshua took out whatever he had in Canaan. So now he calls himself the king of Canaan, but he doesn't rule in Canaan because... He doesn't have a palace or a fortress there anymore. It's gone. We get to Judges. Are they going to do it? Are the Benjaminites going to go and take Benjamin's area? Are the Danites going to go and take Dan's area? Are the men of Judah going to go and take the Judah? And if you know the story, you know what the answer to that is. Flip over with me in the book of Judges and look at Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 6. So this is a, we're, we're, we're picking up the end of Joshua after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. So that, that's the end. Joshua's like, okay, Benjamin guys, you go here. Judah, you go here. Dan, you go here. He dismisses them. Everybody breaks up to go and do that. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and those who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at age 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance, in Timnas Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. 
After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress." Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they wouldn't listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's command. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies. As long as the judge lived, for the Lord relented because of the groaning under those who were oppressed and afflicted. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods, serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And so, spoiler alert, we know right at the beginning of Judges, the answer to the question is no. No, they're not going to take the land. They're not going to go do what God says. They're not going to be faithful to him. And if you flip over to chapter 3, you can watch this. There's 12 Judges And you can watch this cycle happen over and over again. Chapter three, verse seven, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishanaim, the king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othiniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. And if you look at the end of his story in verse 11, the land had peace for 40 years, until Othniel, son of Kenez, died. And then what's the very next verse? Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because they did this evil, the Lord gave them into the hands of Eglon, king of Moab, and he had power over Israel. Dum, 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 follow, just go all the way down. Verse 15, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. He gave them a deliverer. Keep going down. Go to the end of the story, verse 30. Moab was subject to Israel. The land had peace for 80 years. The next judge is Shamgar. He gets one verse. We know absolutely nothing about it. Sorry, bud. That's the way it goes. Chapter four, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ahub was dead and God raises up Deborah. Go to the end of Deborah's story at the end of, at the end of chapter five. The land had peace for 40 years. You see this pattern going over and over and over again. Gideon, chapter six, verse one, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and so he sold them into the hands of the Midianites. You go to the end of Gideon's story, so which is in, chap, which is in chapter eight. Well, we'll start at 28. Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise their heads ahead again. During during Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace 40 years. Chapter 9, Abimelech. This guy's not a judge. This is Gideon's son. Like, wait, 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 what's going on? You read the story. Abimelech's a train wreck. He's not saving Israel from external people. He starts a civil war inside the country. Wait a minute, we've had these judges who've done these great things. All of a sudden... After, the judge still does a great thing, but afterwards, oh, everything collapses. So we get Abimelech's story. Then we get chapter 10, Tola. He's the next judge. After the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar named Tola rose up. He led Israel 23 years. 40, 80, 40, 40, 40, 23. You're never going to see 40 again. He led Israel 23 years. Then he was followed by Jer. Jer led Israel 22 years. 
he's followed by Jephthah. Again, Jephthah does save Israel. That story ends in chapter 11. Then we get the story in chapter 12 about the Ephraimites. Ephraim's part of Israel. Look at chapter 12, verse 6. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah kills 42,000 Israelites. After he saves Israel, he turns around and slaughters tens of thousands of Israelites. He led Israel six years. Ibzan led Israel seven years. Elon led Israel 10 years. Abdon led Israel how many years? Eight years. 40, 80, 40, 40, 40, uh, 20, 20, 20, 7, 8, 6. Like, we're just doing this in the story. We're crashing and burning. The last judge in the book of Judges is Samson, chapter 13. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. See, now the 40 isn't on their deliverance. It's on how long they're, they're imprisoned by a people. Now, what should the next verse say? And the Israelites cried out to the Lord. A certain man of Torah named Manoah from the clan of the Nights, they never cry out. The, the Philistines are oppressing them for a 40 years, and they never, at least in the story, they never cry out to God. They never cry out to God and ask for deliver. So God raises up Samson. Again, kind of a train wreck. I mean, he does save them, sort of, by dying and pulling everything down on top of him. Samson's story ends in chapter 16. He led Israel 20 years which is, you know, a big improvement over the eight and seven guys we had a little before, but not the 40 and 80 guys from the previous time in the generations. But Judges isn't over. He's the last judge in Judges. But there's Judges 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. Do not turn there. I will not read them. They are too awful. I realize I'm just, you know, everyone's going to rush home. Our, our internet is spiking right now as everyone look, tries to look up Judges chapter 17. Again, I can't preach on this without putting an R-rated warning on it. It's so bad. You end Joshua with everyone saying, yes, we'll follow the Lord, and he dismisses them, and nobody does it. Nobody does it. It all collapses, and God keeps raising up men and women to, to lead them and to save them and to get rid of these guys, and it all collapses after that again. I mean, I told you, you know, Abraham's like this, right? Huge obedience, and then, wow, what's wrong with you? And huge obedience, right? We start out with that, and then these guys, like, they don't even, you know, they don't even get up to the heights anymore. They're just kind of heading on down. We get to the end of Judges, and it is so awful. This is the very last verse of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And that verse has been repeated throughout these last five chapters of Judges where everything is just completely collapsing. It is so bad. Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit because we know God promised Abraham. Again, in 2000 BC, right? We're in like 1200 or, or somewhere around there, 1100 at this point. In 2000 BC, God had told Abraham there would be kings that came out of his line. We, like there's gonna be a king 
but there's not one yet. And in fact, if you went back to Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 17, part of Moses' retelling of the law, he has all the law for the kings. And I think I've told you, one of the things the king has to do is he has to copy all of Deuteronomy out by hand, and he has to read it every day. Because the king has a Bible reading plan. I am not asking you to copy the scriptures and read it every day. I'm just asking you to read it every day. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, they are on the back table. Grab one. I mean, the king, that's how the king is supposed to stay close to God. He's supposed to be reading scripture every day, just putting it into his heart and mind all the time. We know there's a king coming, but he's not here yet. Now, flip over to 1 Samuel. So again, you know, we're just, we're chugging through. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel is actually the last judge of Israel. He's not in the book of Judges. He's, in, he's got his own books. He's in the book of Samuel. But he is the last judge. Read along with me. Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The names of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, and they accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And as they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. Listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So Samuel does that. He's like, guys, you really don't want to do this. This is not going to be good. It's not the time. Go on down to verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Like we know that it is God's plan at some point to have a king. He told that to Abraham. He put rules about it in the law. But the people are saying, we want it now. We don't like these judges. We don't like that something happens and some guy gets raised up. And remember, it's their fault. If they follow God, nothing. the people around them will not attack them. God has promised. He's their king. He says, if I'm your king, I will protect you and I will keep all those nations away from you but they keep rejecting him as king. And so those nations come in. God doesn't protect them. They're like, oh, we, we want a permanent military leader. We want a king. We want someone to fight for us. We want someone to, to do the things that need to be done. And God says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. Because Samuel's the ruler, right? A king is going to replace him. So they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me as their king. So give them what they want. Right? There's going to be a king. We know that but not yet. But they insist on it. And God says, God says what he says to Adam and Eve when they're like, no, we won't, you know, we're going to do it our way. Okay. What he says to the people like, no, we won't go in. Okay. Right. What every time people are like, no, we don't want your protection. Okay. God says, yeah, give it to them. This, this is what they want. And so Saul is appointed as king. And if you've read your Bible, you know, what kind of a king Saul was. We, we get three stories after Saul is made king and Samuel steps down. We get three stories about Saul and each one's worse than the last. He disobeys God. He won't do what God says. Samuel's like, what are you doing? Why aren't you obeying? Then he, he, he makes this idiotic vow. He tells his army in the midst of battle, they're marching all night. He tells his army, you can't eat anything until the battle's over and we've won. 
Seriously, they're marching overnight. They're not sleeping. They're going to fight when they get there. They're going to go 24 hours. He's like, no one eats anything until I have my victory. His son isn't with him when he makes that vow. He's on patrol. He's a leader with guys out on patrol somewhere. So he's eating when he doesn't know about the vow. And when it comes out that his son has eaten, Saul, instead of being like, wow, that was an idiotic vow, wasn't it? I really should have told everyone about that. That was stupid. Instead of taking on himself the responsibility, he says, Jonathan, my son, you must die. And the army has to step in and go, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. No, 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 nobody dies. What are you, crazy? Right? He's going to put it on somebody. He's an idiot, and he's going to put it on somebody else. We get another story where God sends him out to do a mission, and he doesn't do it. And then he stands there and, bold, and just lies, bold-faced to Samuel. Oh, no, I did it. I did it all. And this is this hysterical line. God tells him, no plunder. You can't take pl- any of the plunder from it. Be All the animals, the cattle, and all that, kill them. Get rid of them. You can't have them. Right? And here's Saul and all his men marching with cows and sheep and goats, and they've, they've taken all the plunder. And Samuel comes to him, he's like, what are you doing? And Saul's like, I have obeyed the Lord. Samuel's like, no, you haven't. He's like, yeah, I really did. I obeyed him. And Samuel says to him, there's an awful lot of sheep noises for a man who took no plunder. Saul's like, oh, that, that's nothing. Pay no attention to those sheep. I have done what God said. Right? These three stories, three is an important number in this world. Right? Three is their way of saying most. Like we say good, better, best. Right, they say good, 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 good. Right, good, good, good is the best good. What is God? When the angels say of him, he's holy, 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 which means in their world, he's the most holy. There's nothing more holy, right? Three times we get stories about how Saul will not obey. He will not do what's right. So then flip over to chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, "Uh, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. You can imagine a guy like Saul, right? Isn't gonna take too kindly to finding out someone else has been appointed the new king. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. We always knew a king was coming. He'd promised it to Abraham. It's in the law. Now, God says, go and get my king. Not the king these guys wanted. Get my king. And do you know after that, we get three stories about David, right? The first one is about how Saul has evil spirits oppressing him. And when David comes and plays his harp, the evil spirits flee. Like this is somebody that the evil spirit, the evil spirits have no trouble messing with Saul. They do not want to be around David. They flee. The next story, I am sure you know, chapter 17, David and Goliath. Right? Goliath, verse 8 of chapter 17. Goliath stands. The Philistines are on one mountain. The Israelites are on another. There's a big valley between them. Goliath marches down into the valley, stood, shouts at the ranks of Israel, why don't you come out and, why do you come out and line up for battle? Meaning, what are you doing up there? Why aren't you down here? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man, have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Who 
in this world, when a champion comes down, I mean, we're told this guy's a giant. He was like over eight feet tall. He's got, you know, he doesn't use, he doesn't use a spear. He uses a weaver's rod, right? That's what he's throwing at people. It's something that, you know, must weigh 50 or 60 pounds. And he, he throws that as a javelin. When this guy marches down, who is supposed to come meet him? Remember what the people said? Give us a king to lead us and fight our battles. King's not doing it. King's not going down and fighting. It, either the king should come or the king should have a champion. That's what Goliath is. He's not the king. He's the champion of the king. Abner is Saul's champion. Abner's the head of his army. Abner's not going down. Nobody's going down. No one in that whole army, they're all afraid. And so no one goes down. The guy who's supposed to be leading the battles, he's not leading. David shows up. David's not old enough to be in the army. He's just delivering food to his brothers. He hears Goliath and he says in verse 26, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And so David goes to the king, the king in all of the king's armor and weapons and all, and says, I'll take him. And David goes out. And again, he's a teenager. He's not old enough to be in the army yet. He walks down that hill with no armor and no weapon. He doesn't have a sword. He doesn't have a shield. He's not wearing everything. Goliath looks at him in verse 43, and this is what Goliath says. You all think I'm a dog, don't you? You're going to come hit me with a stick. Okay, the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said. I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by a sword or a spear that the Lord saves, for the battle belongs to the Lord, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly forward toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, he took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank in his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran, stood over him, took hold of the Philistine's own sword, drew it from the sheath, and killed him and cut off his head. The king in armor will not go fight this guy. And a teenager in, with nothing says, you really shouldn't talk about God that way. And goes and kills him, right? You have Saul, the king that the people wanted, and you have David, the king that God wanted. And wow, is there an incredible contrast. And for the rest of the book of Samuel, right? Saul gets more and more and more paranoid. Rightfully so, because he is going to be replaced. God has already said that. But he tries to kill David. David flees. The whole rest of the book of Samuel is David fleeing from Saul because he refuses to kill him because he's the king. Everyone is telling David, you are 10 times to go fight him and kill him and take over. And David continually says, no. Absolutely not. God made him the king. When God is through with him, God will finish him. And that is exactly what happens at the end of the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 31, Saul and all but one of his children all die on a mountain fighting the Philistines. 
because he will not do what the Lord has said. And then we get a seven-year civil war as David and and the members of Saul's family fight each other until finally David is victorious, until finally, about a third of the way through 2 Samuel, we finally have everything that God promised Abraham in around 2000 BC. His descendants are more numerous than the sand. They are a nation. They have their own land because David finally takes over that whole box. Saul couldn't do it. None of the tribes ever did it. No one ever did it. David finally takes all of the land of Canaan and makes it part of Israel. Here, we're at about 1,000 BC. This is 1,000 years after Abraham. Finally, everything God promised Abraham has come true. They have the land. They have a king. They are a great nation. They are truly more numerous than you can count stars in the sky. Everything that God promised has happened. So it is happily ever after time, right? Nod, we're all gonna feel good about this, right? From here on out, everything's gonna be great. All of God's promises to Abraham are coming true. God, David will bring the ark and set up the tabernacle again. It's been spread out in pieces everywhere. They've been using it like a lucky charm rabbit foot for the last 500 years, it seems. He will finally take the ark and set up the tent and put it in there and get the priest ministering again. He will get everything going the way it's supposed to be going. Like, from this point on, it should all be smooth sailing. And if you've read the story, you know it's not. That'll be next week. Next week. Uh, yeah, I know. Next week, we'll, 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 we'll finish this out with the kings and the exile. Um, but, but here's what I want you to remember about this story. You know, I've told you over and over again, their story is our story, right? You have these two events that bookend what I'm talking to, this, this portion of history that I've cut out to talk. The first one is they won't go up into the land. God tells them, I'm giving you this land. Go and take it. God says, I will drive everyone out. I will do it. You don't have to do it. You just got to cross the river and go. Do what I say. You will do this. And God, I mean, God tells them like, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this. Like he lays out the whole plan for them and they won't do it. They won't. When God says to go, they won't obey. And then in the end, when they say to Samuel, we want a king and we want it now. It was God's plan to give them a king but not yet. You know, in the first story, God clearly tells them to do something and they won't do it. And then in the last story, they're telling God, you need to do something and you need to do it now. And God is saying, no, it's not time. It's not ready. The pieces, I haven't put it all together. It's not time. And they're saying, we don't care. We want it now. And wow, I think how often is that true of us? How often is God saying, (laughs) I mean, I realize there's a lot I don't know about life, but wow, there's a lot I do. There's a lot of things I do know what to do. How often am I just like, no, I don't want to do that. That sounds hard. (laughs) Somebody's going to laugh at me. That's going to be difficult. That's going to be expensive. That's going to be painful. How often do I know what to do and I'm not going to do it? And then on the other side, how often am I like, God, I want this to happen now. And God's like, no, you need to wait. I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired. I have been waiting. You haven't done it yet. You said you were going to do this. Yeah, he said he was going to do this. But he gets to pick the time, and he gets to pick the way, and he gets, like, that's all him. He gets to make those decisions. I'm like, no, I want it now. 
I want it right now. I want it to happen. I know what's best. Wow, their story. This is thousands of years ago. They're just like us. They're doing all the same things we do. God says do this. We're like, no, I'm not going to do that. That's crazy. They're tall. I could get hurt. God says, we're going to do this, but you need to wait. I'm like, no, I'm not going to wait. I want it now. Do it. Do it. I want to see this now. We are so, their story is our story. So, okay, I get We're in a bit of a cliffhanger here in the the story of redemption. But I'm going to pray for us in our own lives. I'm going to ask God's spirit to to speak to us. Like, are there ways you're doing that? Are there any ways you know what God has said to you, but you're not doing it? Just like, no, that's crazy. I'll get hurt. No, that's crazy. I'll lose money. No, that's crazy. Whatever it is, right? You should do it. I mean, seriously, it'll be way better if you do it. God doesn't ask you to do things that are bad. He definitely asks you to do things that are hard. He doesn't ask you to do things that are bad. Like, like I'm going to pray God gives you the courage to do it. And if there are things where you're waiting and you're sick of waiting, like, no, I'm tired, I'm done. You've said this is coming. I don't want to wait anymore. Wow, don't jump the gun. You don't want Saul. I mean, seriously, you don't want Saul as your king. Saul ruled for 40, for 40 years, and they were not good years. That's like being subject to the Philistines for 40 years. You don't want a Saul. You don't want to jump the gun. I mean, you really, at the end of time, when we're all in his kingdom and we look back on these things, you don't want to have jumped the gun on this. I'm just going to ask the Lord to speak to us. You know, is there any place where God's telling you what to do and you're not doing it? Any place where you're telling God what to do? And he's saying you need to wait. Like, if God's spirit says anything to you in there, wow, say yes, do it. I'm well past a veggie tale episode. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you. You did not desert these people. And when they wouldn't do what you said, when they wouldn't wait, I mean, the only constant in these stories, from starting back in Genesis 1 all those weeks ago, the only constant is that your faithfulness, you consistently are kind and gracious. Thank you. Lord, we are so grateful. I pray now for my brothers and sisters. I pray for me. Lord, is there any place where where we know what to do? We just don't want to do it. It's hard. It's scary. It's dangerous. It's expensive. Whatever it is. Is there anywhere we know what to do, but we don't want to do it? Jesus, give us courage. Give us courage to do what you've told us to do. And Lord, are there any places where, yeah, we, we, we don't want to wait. We want it now. You have said wait, and we have said no, now. I know what's best. And Jesus, give us courage to wait. We need courage. We need courage to obey. We need courage to wait. We need courage to move, and we need courage to sit. You know how hard those are for us. You know that so often we want to move when we shouldn't move, and we want to sit when we shouldn't sit. Lord, be gracious to us. Be gracious to my brothers and sisters. Speak to us as we take communion, as we worship together. Lord, speak to us. Is there any place we're doing this? Give us courage to change. Because everything you say is good. And so we want to be people who do what you say. We want to be people who go when you say go. And we want to be people who wait when you say wait. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let's close our service. As we close this time in all of our services, reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. That just as Jesus was faithful to these guys, he's been faithful to us. 
And so there are stations set up in all four corners of the room. There's the bread and the cup in all four corners. If you need gluten-free, it's down here in the front to my right. I'm gonna pray for us. And then again, as soon as I finish praying, just like always, get up, go to whichever station you like, get the bread, get the cup. Don't, don't eat it right there. Take it back to your seat. I'll lead us. We'll take it all together. And if you've been here before, you've heard me say that. If not, um, then we practice what's called open communion, which means you don't have to be a member of our church. You just have to be a Christian. If you are a follower of Christ, please join us at the table. We are all part of one big C church, the church universal across all the ages through all times. If you're not a Christian, like if you, if you know that, if you know, no, I don't follow Christ, I'm just checking it out or whatever, then please just stay seated. Nobody's gonna think any less of you. This is the only thing in our whole service that is only for believers. So let me pray again. Uh, Jesus, thank you. We always say that here. We're always gonna say that here. Thank you. You didn't have to do this for us. I mean, we will remember this specifically in a few weeks in Easter, but you did not have to do this for us. It's because you are gracious and you are kind. And as, as we read in our service earlier, you know, we were your enemies. You loved us. You died for us when, wow, we, we were not your people. You died to make us your people. Thank you. Jesus, you told us to do this and remember, and we remember. So we pray all this in your name. Amen.